As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday MBA, interviews with best-selling authors, innovative thought leaders, and top-shelf executives, all sharing their best techniques and tips that you don't learn in business school. I'm your host, Kevin Crane, and I'm so pleased that you're listening. Our guest today is Adi Ignatius. Adi is the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Business Review Group, where he oversees the editorial activities of the Harvard Business Review HBR.org, and Harvard Business Review's book publishing unit. Prior to joining HBR in 2009, Adi was the number two editor at Time, and prior to that, he was both Beijing bureau chief and Moscow bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal. Harvard Business Review is celebrating its 100th anniversary, and Adi is with us today to talk about his book, HBR at 100, Harvard Business Review at 100, the most influential and innovative articles from Harvard Business Review's first century. So, Adi, welcome to Everyday MBA. For your book, you studied Harvard Business Review's history all the way back to its first issue in 1922. What struck you most as you look back, and how can a historical perspective on business help us prepare for the future? You know, ideas are funny things. They, um, they, uh, there's a lot of rigor and a lot of science to what we publish. There isn't necessarily science in how it is adopted and when things are adopted. Um, so it's interesting to see ideas that, that come and go and to see which ones become sort of common practice. Um, you know, I'm struck by something like, you know, Michael Porter's great article on strategy where he outlines the five forces of strategy. You know, this is this is half a century old, and uh, practically, and it it you know it remains probably the most studied text on strategy that's out there. There 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 are new newer theories, there are newer approaches, but that is still kind of bedrock for how do you think about this kind of stuff. Or Clay Christensen on on disruptive innovation. You know, there there are are, are adherents of his theory. There are detractors. This idea that. You know, if you're an incumbent, a, a, a lower level, you know, disruption can come your way and you would be smart not to, you know, don't ignore it because that is, that's how new competition comes in. So, you know, say what you will about the theory, you know, it's it's the only business book Steve Jobs says he ever read. And it's, it's you know, Jeff Bezos made every one of his managers read that article and, and that book too. So it's, it's just interesting, you know, you can't predict how ideas will take hold, but a few of them have really changed the landscape of business over the hundred years. Did you find any early precursors to some of the current trends that we're experiencing today, say like uh, environmental sustainability or social issues, for example, when you studied the HBR archives? 
So absolutely. I mean, so if you define ESG, and, and look, ESG has its own issues and problems, but if you define it, d- define it essentially as paying attention to a broad range of stakeholders, you know, and figuring out how to how to try to measure and enforce that, then yeah, there there are absolutely precedents that go way back. I mean, this is this is a new argument, but it's also not a new argument. So, you know, in the 30s, you had you had you know influential thinkers arguing that corporations had to pay attention to a broad range of, you know, they didn't use the term stakeholders then. Um, later, you had you know CSR, corporate social responsibility. I mean, that phrase was coined in the 1950s. So, you know, in some ways it feels new, this idea that that businesses have to do more than than just make money for their shareholders. But the conversations have been going on for, for a long time. Interesting. Things change, but they tend to remain the same. From your perspective, not only looking back at the last 100 years of business, but also from your position really at the pulse of business today, what trends and conditions that you are witnessing will most shape the future of business are things, what, what is changing? So to me, the most interesting moment that we're in right now is, um, so, so, so this gets back to what, what we were just talking about, how ideas take hold. So, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, kind of theories about maximizing shareholder value took hold. So you had, you had articles by Michael Jensen and others in HBR and elsewhere that really had this appealing simplicity that, you know, managers can't focus on, can't maximize everything, uh, number one. Number two, that there was a concern that managers and owners were not aligned in kind of their their uh, priorities. So this theory came about that Jensen really gets credit for, uh, Jensen is co-author, that was really, um, the way you align these things is, 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 by just making it clear the primacy of shareholder value and how do you how do you make that happen how do you align the values between the owner and the the manager well in part by things like stock options so that everybody is is aligned that share price is uh is the maximum good now that this is just an idea and and as i was saying there were there were counter arguments to that even before this was laid out and yet it took hold. You know, Milton Friedman became a champion of this. You know, if you ask most CEOs for the past 50 years, they would say, not only are they about maximizing shareholder value, they have no choice. They're legally required to do so. They're not, you know, they're not legally required to maximize each quarter's uh, share price. That's, that's, you know, that, that, that's a fad. That's a trend. That's not, that's not the law. And yet this idea was kind of so simple and so powerful that it dominated the business landscape for 50 years. Now you're talking about looking forward. So what's interesting to me is we're in a different place right now. And there is real pressure for companies, for CEOs to think about stakeholders more broadly. So we have people who are thinking about the kind of ideological underpinning of that. So what is the theory of stakeholder capitalism? Again, shareholder maximizing shareholder value had this appealing simplicity. Um, stakeholder capitalism seems more complicated, but rather than this being this kind of a haphazard, everybody approaches this in a different way. I, I think I think in the coming years, we'll, we'll try to come up with a theory and try to figure out how do you measure these externalities that companies create that maybe they need to be responsible for, you know, and maybe data and technology will allow us to 
do that and track that better. So, so to my mind, that's some of the most exciting stuff that that I think is surely out there. I don't know what the next phase of capitalism is, but I feel it will be different from the the, the past fifty years. What is your advice for leaders from your perspective? What can they learn from your book? What leadership lessons should they learn from the archive that should influence their leadership style moving forward? Well, one thing I hope people get from the book is that is that HPR isn't daunting. I mean, I, I think there are plenty of people out there who think Harvard Business Review is too dry or too technical or too specialized. And, you know, as I look at this collection of articles, it's really about how people interact, you know, specifically in the workplace. But so over the years, you know, we're dealing with a lot of a lot of the kind of soft issues, you know, how how managers interact with employees, how to how to think about things like you know, work-life balance, how to, how to be emotionally intelligent. So, you know, I hope, I hope people would find these ideas like, yeah, that touches my life, that, that, that this isn't just for some, you know, corner office, lifelong learner nerd, but, but that this, this has sort of broad value. Um, you know, as for leaders themselves, look, there, there are some people who would not read, some CEOs who would not read an article in HBR elsewhere to save their life. It's just not how they learn. It's not how they lead. And then there is this category of people we call lifelong learners who are always looking for ideas based on research. I mean, that's what we promise. Practical value, that's what we also promise. Um, so I guess, I guess, you know, my advice would be if you're that kind of person, pick, you know, pick up the magazine. Maybe something will surprise you. You are listening. You are listening. You are listening. You're listening to Everyday MBA. You know, folks, I have the pleasure of interviewing some of today's top business authors and thought leaders, and I learn a lot, and so do our listeners. Would you like to be a guest on Everyday MBA? Well, I'd love to speak with you, too. Are you an author, a thought leader, an entrepreneur, or a consultant? Be a guest. Let's talk about your ideas, why they're important, and what your recommendations are for our listeners. Find out more at everyday-mba.com slash guest. That's everyday-mba.com slash guest. We are here with Adi Ignatius. Adi is the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Business Review Group, and Harvard Business Review is celebrating its 100th anniversary. Adi is with us to talk about his book, HBR at 100, the most influential and innovative articles from Harvard Business Review's first century. Adi, the most influential and innovative articles from HBR in the first hundred years, that is quite a collection. You've mentioned some, but is there one article that you feel is particularly noteworthy that we should be looking at and what can we learn from it? Well, I mean, the article that spoke to me as much as any other was an article by Clay Christensen, who, you know, I'm sure your your listeners know well. But it wasn't about disruptive innovation. It was, it was an article called, you know, how will you measure your life? And you know, Clay applied some of the discipline of of his thinking on disruptive innovation and everything else that he studied to sort of himself and his life, and and. Um, you know, it, it it was the course that he would teach at the end of every year. You know, he would he and his students would all sort of end up in in tears because it was very personal and very moving. And you know, simple things that you think about. I mean, I, I just I remember one off the top of my head where where Clay just said, you know, it's easy, it's easier to do the right thing a hundred percent of the time than ninety eight percent of the time. You know, that once you 
once you slip, it's over. So, uh, you know, I just, I found that, especially from a guy like Clay, who, who you know, enjoyed so much respect, lived such a, a, a big and generous life. You know, it was, a, it was a nice little blueprint for trying to get certain things in your own life uh, aligned. I want to ask you about your work as an editor. Uh, you oversee the editorial activities of HBR, HBR.org, and Book Publishing Unit. You're also the host of the HBR channel. How do you go about your job as an editor of seeking out the business ideas, the best business ideas, and separating them from the rest? Well, the secret for me is I have a great team of editors, and I, I don't mean that in some you know blandly modest way. It's just you know I, I've got a team of editors who who really specialize. You know, they're not experts in the various topic we cover, but they know the canon, they know what's out there, they know what the new thinking is. So. You know, some of our some of our acquisition of of articles and authors is proactive. Some of it is passive. That things kind of arrive in our mailbox. And you know, I've got this team of people who have the ability to look at a piece on strategy or marketing or AI or what have you, and really size it up. Number one is this new. Number two is this important. And number three, number three is it well written? And then number four, does it have practical value? And you know, we know HBR is nobody's first read. It's probably nobody's second or even third read so that when they turn to HBR, we have to, we have to deliver value, you know, not just something interesting and intriguing, but something that also offers a kind of, you know, practical immediate takeaway. If it's something that's, that's relevant and of interest to you. Prior to joining Harvard business review, you were the number two editor at time. Why was the Harvard business review the right next move for you? So yeah, if you look at my resume, this job is the outlier. I mean, I was a foreign correspondent for years. I was in I was in Moscow, as you said earlier. I was in Beijing. Um, I, you know, I've never I've never loved a job more than this one. And um, I think I was hired because there was a realization that HBR needed to modernize, that it needed an editor with the metabolism more of a journalist than an academic who could help. Um, you know, figure out ways to to get our ideas out to a a broader, you know, a broader reader base. It's sort of what I was saying before that HBR ideas don't need, you know, we don't have to be daunting, and 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 you don't define quality just by length. That you're actually serving up stuff, long, short, digital, audio, you know, video. We have a TikTok channel. I mean, just finding different channels to to provide information for people in different ways. Um, you know, on my best days, I feel like we can change the world for the better. That we, um, you know, are we edit more than write. We don't have in-house writers, so what we publish reflects the thinking of an academic or a consultant or an executive or whoever's writing the piece. But we do have a few values that we think are proven in terms of generating long-term commercial success. And there are things like um, sustainability, diversity, you know, kind of, you know, fact-based decision-making, long-term thinking. That, and these aren't just sort of woke values of the moment. That, that there's research that that really makes it clear that if you pay attention to these, they have positive long-term effects. So, you know, in that sense, by by having those kind of unspoken pillars, you know, I hope we're publishing stuff that that is helping companies be more successful, but also maybe helping the world to be a better place. You mentioned sustainability, diversity, fact-based. Uh, 
these are concerns that may or may not be manifesting themselves in our world today, our society today. Can business lead the way? Can business change the world for better in these ways? Yeah, that's such a that's such a great question. It's such the question of the moment. You know, those values I would have said were non-controversial and universal, you know, 10 years ago. And now it just it seems like there's no such thing as an uncontroversial uh, view on on anything. Um, I, look, I think I think a lot of us are frustrated with governments. They're frustrated with NGOs. Um, I'm a very idealistic person. I want to see positive change happen and it's not happening you know that should happen through through legislation and and you know I, I most of us feel that the legislative bodies aren't working very effectively so then we turn to businesses um I, you know in an ideal world that doesn't quite seem right that business should should be tasked with solving societal problems on the other hand if they're not getting fixed anywhere at the very least you know businesses have the ability within that ecosystem that they control a company or a, a an organization or a, a huge corporation to to try to get it right on some of these things to try to represent diversity to try to make commitments to sustainability um to try to serve a broad range of stakeholders uh and not not you know including uh shareholders absolutely but not just shareholders um so if that happens, then you would imagine these ecosystems become, you know, better places that the change happens pocket by pocket by pocket. I, I, you know, I don't want to overstate it. And, and a lot of these same businesses that are trying to do the right thing in certain areas are also fighting for the lowest possible, you know, tax payments, which further keeps legislatures from working effectively. So I'm not I'm not going crazy but but we are at a moment where we're we're looking where many of us are looking for sort of positive impact and in some ways companies you know can and it feels like even should rise to the occasion can should and in many cases maybe must in order to remain competitive i mean you you mentioned pocket by pocket i think that's an interesting way of putting it when when the the altruistic or the social needs of customers and stakeholders align with the profitability uh possibilities for organizations i think that's kind of a sweet spot so that you know we have the best of both worlds doing good and doing well at the same time do you feel that that is our our future moving forward I think I mean a certain certainly there 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 are people who have tried to make that case who've published an HBR about that you know conscious capitalism movement is one and there are others, um, yeah I mean I, this period right now where um, employees seem to have more agency seem to be able to make more choices um, you know maybe if the recession gets worse we'll think that's a quaint concept but but they do and they they seem increasingly to want to work for companies that uh represent their own values that seems like an important point number two just the rise of social media twitter and other things means you know as these things happen the sort of twitter mobs will interpret a company's response to big social or even political issues so that silence isn't even an option anymore because you know, the Twitter mob will interpret that silence in one way or the other. So it almost forces companies and CEOs to, to be in the arena. And then increasingly, um, people want to buy from companies that share their values. So so all of that kind of puts this stuff in play. And yeah, it goes from whether the question is should to companies must. I mean, they really, um, 
you know, in order to to align with their employees and even their customer base, they have to figure out where they stand on certain issues. And it's not really what any CEO wants to do, but it's it's just harder to avoid that now for the reasons I, I listed. You're listening to Everyday MBA. We have been speaking with Adi Ignatius. Adi is the editor-in-chief at the Harvard Business Review, and we're talking about his book, HBR at 100, the most influential and innovative articles from Harvard Business Review's first century. Adi, it's been great speaking with you today. We're almost out of time, but before I let you go, one last question. We've, we've been looking back, say, in chunks of 100 years and looking forward what about the immediate future? What should executives and business owners and all of us really be thinking about now and strategizing for today in order to be prepared for the world in five years' time? Um, well, this isn't an original thought, but it's it's I think it's the thing, and that is agility, just kind of extreme agility that um, I, I think most of us think about the past few years, COVID, uh, you know, new outbreaks of war in various places, social justice movement launched by, you know, the murder of George Floyd and and other things. It's just feeling like, wow, it's just sort of wave after wave after wave. I, I don't think that will ever dissipate. I think we're just in a world, and maybe it's because of inter interconnectedness. I, I don't know why, but I, I just think leaders have to just be agile that, that, there may not be periods where you just think, wow, okay, you know, I can just kind of cruise and do what I'm doing. And that means you need to hire for that. You know, that means you need to hire people who um, are able to go with the shift in strategy that has to happen because some of these external events are are changing your market. So, um, you know, I think, I think it's pretty well understood, but, but, but I, I, but I think there's certain companies that are hiring, you know, they shifted, the skills for which they hire from technical skills to more of a sort of psychological, um, um, you know, a, a adaptability quotient or something like that. And that, and that, that is really necessary because it's just, things are, things are going to keep kind of changing in a way. It just, it will seem that it's more and more, you know, more and more rapid. Um, so I think, I think that's the skill above all that, that both leaders and um, people who are, Find for a job need to need to work on. That is Adi Ignatius. Find him at hbr.org and get his book HBR at 100, the most influential and innovative articles from Harvard Business Review's first century. Adi, thank you so much for being our guest today on Everyday MBA. It is my pleasure. Thank you very much. That'll do it for this episode of Everyday NBA. And do you want to be a guest on the show? It could happen. Join our Knowledge Leadership Circle and be featured in an interview of your own. Be a guest. Just go to everyday-mba.com slash guest for more information. That's everyday-mba.com slash guest.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.